Welcome back to The Professor and the Hack. We're up to episode 46. I'm the Hack, Hugh Rimminson, and uh, with me as always, uh, the Professor of uh, Political Science and uh, National Political Editor for the 10 Network, the great Peter Van Onselen. Peter, how are you holding up? Oh, I'm holding up okay, Hugh. How are you going, though? You know, this is, well, uh, this I'm, is I'm holding up better times. than a virtual shareholder is all I'd say at the moment. But uh, <laughs> That's not much of a point of comparison, though, is it? Let's be honest. I mean, wow. What do you, what do you think the government's going to ultimately do there? We're seeing some evidence of where they're heading, but they're not quite hitting exactly where Virgin wants to go. And I'll, I'll tell you this. Not quite. The, nowhere near. <laughs> the, the, the government ministers that I've spoken to to try to sort of get a sense of where they're at on background about this, their point is just very clear. They just say, look, Virgin had problems before the pandemic uh, and there was talk of a bailout even then in some form. So let's not let, uh, you know, the circumstances of now which are affecting everyone and obviously also affecting Virgin even more so necessarily see us tip good money against bad. Look, I think that's right. And we can kind of laugh about feeling better than a Virgin shareholder. But, uh, you know, there's 15 to 16,000 jobs out there that are dependent on Virgin and uh, some very anxious people as they wait to see how this plays out. But Virgin was very frank. They, they, they initially went to the government and said, hey, look, a $1.4 billion bailout would be handy right about now. And you can have a little bit of equity. Let's, let's see what we can talk about there. The government not buying into it at all. And mm. they've held the line on that. Labor seemed more intrigued about... Uh, uh, as uh, Albanese said, there'll never be a better time. It is the bottom of the market. So buy into Virgin. In five years' time, the government can sell out its stake and make a profit. That's the uh, the theory, and the taxpayer gets something out of that. See, I, 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 yeah, go on. I'm not uncomfortable about them buying into Virgin if, and it's an important if, if they're going to get an equity stake out of it. It might not be what you'd call in the ordinary course of events a good investment, but when you factor in the benefits of having two airlines, uh, the the capacity to buy in at the bottom of the market, it, it's perhaps, you know, and also obviously importantly save 16,000 jobs on the way through, then I'm okay with that. Where I've got an issue is if it's a loan uh, without equity uh, or indeed a grant, which would be even worse. Uh, that's where I have a problem. And my preferred option probably, uh, and you know, I haven't crunched the numbers in any details on this, but there's also the capacity to fill the hole without actually buying the business. You know, they can sort of swoop in after the fact, if you like. Their planes are leased, you know, their airport positioning is on leases. It's possible to do it that way where you take everything except the nomenclature of Virgin Airlines. Um, but one but, of those but options is that a job is okay. for a government? Well, no, to go not normally. With Qantas? No, no would be my normal view on this. You know, I've, I've always been an economic liberal, but we live in strange times. Uh, and I don't mind it if the goal of the government is to ultimately get out of it. Now, this isn't quite analogous because that's not what has happened in New Zealand. But when Air New Zealand got into some trouble some years ago, uh, the New Zealand government bought in and now they're buying even more in um, at the moment because of the current crisis. They've stayed in, but at arm's length. It's probably not their job to be in, con in conflict with Qantas as a competitor, uh, particularly ironically, given that Qantas used to be the national airline before it was sold off. But I, I think in the times we're in, if they think it's so important to save jobs and so important to have a second carrier, that's the way to do it. Certainly not chucking money even via a loan uh, at an airline that is 90% owned by essentially foreign governments via the foreign airlines that the government owned that control those interests. I just think that that is not something that we should be doing. And Certainly, that seems to be where the government's landing at the very least. 
Yeah, the government seems to have no interest. This is $165 million across the airlines to keep some domestic routes going, uh, mm. which you know, there are some questions to be begged there about, uh, you know, they're flying into Perth, which has sort of shut itself off. What exactly might that service look like? Um, and, and happy, as they keep saying, to leave it to the market uh, to resolve. Uh, but as you point out, Virgin has foreign shareholdings. Eddie had as a major um, is a major yep. shareholder, but Eddie had is itself a loss-making airline. They've made some poor investments in airlines in India and elsewhere. Alitalia, uh, there's Hainan Air, the uh, Chinese carry, which is also in trouble. It's, you know, there's not a lot of money that's likely to be flooded into Virgin, and that means no. that you're going to wind up with basically broken wreckage. That uh, that someone will come up and and you know, vulture capitalists will come in and buy cheap, uh, looking for a, a turnaround at some stage in the future. So something will happen, but it looks at the moment as a virgin is uh, pretty much um, gone. But then um, that's only one of many issues around the place. Uh, you, you've been watching the National Cabinet. We just talk about schools getting back on yep. to play. Let's talk about the uh, trying to navigate the road out. How do we get out of this? And what's the tone that you're really picking up from Scott Morrison? Well, the first thing I'd say about Scott Morrison at the moment is that, and, and this is interesting, whether he's doing well by compromising and backflipping, which I'll talk about, or whether he has been dragged kicking and screaming to that position, but he's just doing well in his media performance around it, not looking annoyed by it. Uh, perhaps you can tell me your thoughts on that, because the two things I'm in particular thinking about is, his rhetoric of kids must go to school has shifted to parents must listen to their state premiers. And that's, of yeah, course don't listen to me. State, yeah, don't, don't listen to me, whatever you do, because I have no power here. That's essentially where he's landed on this because the state premiers, of course, run schools. They have the direct line of sight and they are going off in different directions. Now I don't have a problem with that because there are different um, philosophical views as well as different uh, challenges from state to state. So what well, Victoria the philosophical does... views, yeah, the philosophical views shouldn't be a factor in a place where ideology, ideology is theoretically all been thrown to the curb because it's all about science. So um, surely it has more to do with the spread of the virus in various jurisdictions. Mostly, but I do think maybe philosophical views is the wrong way to put it, the way you interpret the data. Because from what I can gather uh, in conversations I've had as well as what I've seen publicly, there are two ways you can look at the health benefits or costs vis-a-vis -vis schools. The Victorian chief health officer is basically saying what I think personally is an obvious thing, that less kids on less public transport congregating at schools, even if uh, kids are not the transporters of this virus that they perhaps might be in terms of other flus, uh, it's still just a risk-averse proposition, let's keep them at home. I think that's entirely logical. However... I also think it's entirely logical if you look at the medicine in a different way and you say, well, the other health costs of kids being at home with the dysfunction to the family, with social issues in some families, the mental health stresses of it, the learning challenges, which I guess takes us beyond the medical to the educational, I can see all of those points as well. So it kind of depends on which way you look at it to some extent. And I, I think on that score, uh, Victoria is looking at it differently than you know, somewhere like Queensland, for example, or certainly Western Australia, as well as, Hugh, what you say, which are all those issues uh, attached to the geographical differences of where the spread of the virus is at. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we saw uh, in um, New South Wales in the week leading into 
the term break that by that stage t- uh, parents are taking their kids out holus bolus anyway i think it was up around about 90 percent uh of kids were being kept at home at that point and uh, gladys berejiklian has indicated she thinks that uh, it'll probably look something the same for at least the first couple of weeks into the new term in other words parents are really making a vote on this and they're ignoring mm. uh fundamentally scott morrison's quite impassioned um you know video social media pleas for people to get back to school and um, they're making their own judgment and they're kind of yeah. saying realistically speaking they're taking a middle road maybe by week three we'll start to filter kids back into into the classroom environment a bit more um but, but but that's the first point though isn't it but that's the first point isn't it though so so on schools we've seen the prime minister shift from demanding kids go back to school to saying you should listen to your premier who doesn't necessarily agree with me on this and of course the act not a state a territory but they're even more far removed from the Prime Minister's positioning on this with what they're doing. But the other issue that he's, uh, if you like, backflipped on is the return of Parliament. He's going to trial a return of Parliament in May. Got to love this. The likely time in May is the week of 11 May with a start on 12 May, the Tuesday, and just have three days of sitting for the 12th, 13th and 14th of May. Now, if that is what happens, that was meant to be the triumphant return of Parliament on the 12th of May because we were going to be back in the black. Uh, as the Treasurer handed down his budget on that day. But in this case, it'll be the return of Parliament against the desires of the Prime Minister for a trial because he's backflipped on that. So my question for you, Hugh, is whether it's the schools or whether it's the backflip on the Parliament, he has shifted. Has he done it because he's doing well to shift and we should applaud him for it? Or is he just doing well at not looking as annoyed as he looked early on when he was forced to shift from certain things? Sure, I'd give him points on both of those things. First of all, to say that Parliament can't return before August, which was the original proposition, was entirely wrong. It sent yep. a completely wrong signal to the nation, uh, you know, to, to rule by executive fiat was, is the wrong thing to do. And uh, quite apart from in the long term, uh, really feeding all those people who think Parliament's a complete waste of time and has no value, not a view that I share. I think, I think parliamentary democracy has a purpose and is part of the things that's kept us stable. You and me, you and me both, you. So, so I think that's right. I think your point is really, really good about the fact that was going to be the uh, the budget session. The budget, of course, has now been pushed back uh, through to October for obvious reasons. But I don't have a problem with a prime minister uh, conceding the need to change positions um, and doing it quite openly. That is, that to me is good leadership, not bad leadership. Uh, the the notion of being locked into positions and then having to stick with those positions because you said it and you you know, and you're afraid of the gotcha moment and that you can never change and all that this kind of man of steel thing that you've got, got to be always unbending is very poor leadership in my view. I agree with you about that. I think that there are two versions of a leader changing their position though. And, and I like I like both, but I like one more than the other. You know, the, the John Maynard Keynes idea that when the facts change, I change my mind, what do you do? I've always loved that because you've got to be agile enough that you can do what's right now and then change that if you think that the circumstances have changed. That's the, the best form of change, I think. The other one, which is what I think this is, is when you just get it wrong and you're prepared to make a shift. Now, ideally, when you do that, you've also got the decency to acknowledge that you were wrong when you make the shift. I don't think Morrison goes that far. I think he's a personality type where he doesn't like to admit error. But I still think it's a growth mindset and a good thing that he's at least changing his position and trying to stuff backfill it to justify it. Good luck to him on that. That's politics. That's his personality. 
but at least he's being prepared it's a, to it's change a political when he's personality as well. Another great saying <laughs> is the one is that uh, confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. Um, and it's particularly <laughs> true in politics, where when you're confessing that you're wrong over something, we've taken a possession, a position on something, uh, people then start to accumulate all your self-declared gaffes. Uh, yeah. Politics is a tough game, which all goes by its own rules. So I think the key thing is, is that uh, if he is feeling now confident enough, and I think he's grown in confidence enormously. That's a good point. That's a great point, to, actually. To, to make shifts and, and concede that, that we need to do something in a different way, that actually builds, I think, public confidence, that they're, that they're not locked in, that they'll make good decisions. And one decision they seem to be making, and the language is pretty clear, is that they're not going to be galloping back. This snapback is still some distance away. And I think for all the pain of these shutdowns, a significant pain of the, what we're in, um, you know, Peter Strong from the small business lobby, Cosboa, saying today that the worst thing to do would be to um, reopen businesses, have another sudden outbreak of the virus uh, galloping back up again and have to shut down businesses again. Uh, that would be the worst of outcomes. So slowly can sometimes be the better way to win the race, I suspect. Yeah, look, I, I agree with that. I think that they, and there's so many moving parts. I think it's actually really interesting from a public policy perspective to watch how this reboot does or doesn't happen. Can I just say this, though, before we move on into perhaps a longer discussion on the other side of the break about uh, the reboot and how it could or should happen? What do you think about this? I've noticed whether it's on social media or in, in some commentary or, or on things like talkback radio, there's this real sense at the moment from some people saying, oh, the doomsdayers were wrong. Look at how few people have died. Look at how few people have got infected. Uh, they were wrong in all of their panic merchant attempts to scare us all. I find that such a stupid way of looking at this, and I don't have any better word for it than that, maybe dumb or moronic, because the whole point of people stressing the need to come down hard early and being critical of things like the CMO handshaking, the Prime Minister saying he's off to the footy, uh, the lockdown's not coming hard and fast enough, and then eventually they did come hard and very fast. The whole point of what all of these people were saying was to get us to where we are now so that we are not now where the US is, where the UK is, where Italy and Spain have comfortably been, but rather so that we're emulating places like, well, New Zealand are doing well, but you know, certainly South Korea, Singapore to some extent as well, Japan to some extent. That's the whole point. Just because what people were crying out to be done got done in the days that followed, and then we have avoided the panic and the concern that was laid out uh, predictively, that is not people being wrong. That is the, the people who were stressing the need to be hard about this being right and thankfully being at least in part listened to by the decision makers. I, I think that's a good thing. And I think it's so ridiculous when people have the illogic to not be able to see that, you know, one outcome shifts to another. Remember that very first press conference that the Prime Minister and the CMO did just days after the stupidity that weekend of the pair of them, frankly, with the handshaking as well as the I'm off to the footy, sending the wrong message. Unsurprisingly, Australians in their droves continuing to go off to the beaches and so forth in the week that followed because they took the lead of their leaders and the leadership group in this. And then do you remember that panicked press conference in the days straight after that? 
when this thing was on a knife's bloody edge and could have gone either way in the following couple of weeks, I remember Brendan Murphy and Scott Morrison, they looked, pardon my French here if you need to beep it out, scared shitless in the press conference as they were really ramming it home to people. Stop doing what you're doing. They look panicked. Now they look calm because things are going well and that's great. But boy, there was a turn spot there where we could have gone down the wrong bloody path here. And frankly, the only reason we didn't was because we moved hard, we moved fast. And that's what a lot of the people that were predicting problems, the risk of problems rather than predicting them, were saying, if we don't do this, that is what's going to happen. Well, we did do it. So that didn't happen. The US didn't do it. Look what's happening over there. Yeah, I, I know we've got to go to a break in a minute, but I think, I think that you, you pinpoint the exact moment in the history of the Australian response to this is that we went from Scott Morrison, cheerful hokum daggy dad, saying Australians yep. have just got to keep on being Australians and we'll get through this as if nothing really has to change. And then within days, turning around and saying, guys, everything's changing. And, yep. um, you know, he, he looked weak and lost and overwhelmed at that point in that span, but he got on the right track and credit for doing it. And just briefly helped, on that, helped on along the by of, the premiers, helped along by the uh, absolutely forced forced to the front line by the premiers. Uh, yeah, yeah, he was there. dragged to a position of leadership. <laughs> yeah, by by Victoria and uh, New South Wales, particularly Victoria. But uh, you, you you raise a really good point about those who now say, "Well, look, we're not all dying in our thousands and thousands, so therefore, what was the fuss about?" And it, it reminds me of two things that a long time Labour lament, a long time Labour lament, where Paul Keating, of course, instituted so many reforms in the 80s and yeah. early 90s, which then he said converted people from essentially working in the factory floor to becoming their own tradies, success, running their own successful businesses, and as he put it, driving Audis, but not turning around and thanking Labour for it, going on to vote for the Liberal Party <laughs> thereafter. And and the other Kevin one, Rudd. of course, is the GFC, GFC. Kevin Rudd. Yeah. You know, they put in the money. They saved us from the GFC. They kept our economy going with help from China buying our fundamental resources. Uh, but then later on, all people saw was the debt and anything that ever gone wrong in that. And they punished Labour for it. So that's a story still to be learned as to how it might work for the coalition. I think we need a quick break. Uh, we'll be back in just a minute. Hey, Stu here from 10 Speaks. And we've just turned one. 10 Speaks as a platform, I mean, not me or anyone on the team. We do not employ babies to make podcasts. I want to make that as clear as possible. We do have some great potties for you, though, like Hammer at Home with Barry Dubois, Short Black, The Professor and the Hack, Starstruck with Angela Bishop, The Goo Goo Gaga Show. That last one isn't real. It's just, you know, the baby thing again. Thanks for listening over the last year, and stay tuned as we have some great new shows arriving in the coming months. Welcome back. Episode 46 of The Professor and the Hack. We're looking at how we're going to get out with uh, PVO, Peter Van Onselen, uh, with me, how we're going to get out. And I think the signals that we've seen in recent days from the Prime Minister is really a tamping down... um, an admonishment of sorts against those you're seeing them writing columns, some of the Australian, a lot that have been written in the Australian Financial Review, the business newspaper, they've toned down their editorial line a little bit in recent days, but there was a, a spray of stuff that was coming out just in, you know, even just a week or so ago of people saying the IPA, we talked about this at another level that, you know, that the lockdown's got to stop now. 
the prime minister is being much more moderate uh, in his um, in the expectations he's allowing people to form about how we're going to extract ourselves from this. Would that be a fair judgment? Yeah, I think that's a fair judgment. And I think he realizes, and certainly his office I know realizes uh, by extension of him that there's a long way to go on this. And and you know he took a stratospheric rise up the opinion polls uh, when this started to go right, and his handling of it looked strong and and justifiably so. But now is the time where the unwinding of the lockdown and the rebooting of the economy, it's difficult, it's complex, there will be false starts, people will get frustrated if they aren't already, Uh, the reality will set in for a lot of people, again, if it hasn't already, in terms of what they face out the other side of this with with job losses and and hits to economic growth, he knows how hard this is going to be from here and this is actually where we talk about some of you know these other governmental decisions where you know with the wisdom of hindsight people say oh you didn't need to do this or do that where in fact if they hadn't done it we wouldn't have had the benefits out the other side this is the threat now for scott morrison i don't think too many people are going to hold it against him that he got the lockdown in place when he did because had he waited another week or two we would have been the us or the uk Uh, So he will get genuine marks for that. And I don't think people will hold it against him that he didn't go a week earlier, uh, which he probably should have, quite frankly. But the fact that he didn't doesn't look to have hurt us as much as it might have. So that's a good thing. So I don't see that being where he gets criticised. Where he has the risk down the track uh, is that he perhaps at one level gets attacked the way that uh, Kevin Rudd and Wayne Swan were out the other side of the GFC. If having thrown so much money into things like JobKeeper and all the rest of it, $200 billion all up. If the economy still acts like a slug for years to come, and and if he doesn't get the subsequent policy settings right in whatever people's minds of right is in those subsequent years, the risk for him is that he gets attacked on that front, ironically by his right flank. Now, Hugh, what do you think that means for him politically though? Because a liberal prime minister getting attacked from his right flank doesn't pose too many electoral problems for him from Labor, though. That's the only interesting thing about this. I think Labor finds it harder uh, to justify spending too much in, in the accusations of people because it, it's, it's perceived, rightly or wrongly, to be the party of spending too much, whereas the Liberal Party is perceived to be the party of better economic managers. So if they spend too much according to their right flank having to go at them, I don't think that there's too many Labor voters that, or, or, or centre-of-the-road voters that would look at that and go, gee, you know, bad on you well it's a, a couple of things about that the election at the moment seems like such a long way away you know our lives are changing day by day week by week and uh whatever happens in the next election is is for the distance but uh you're right if he gets attacked from the right that doesn't necessarily damage him uh going into an election what has tended to happen when the right start banging the drums is they tend to make life very difficult for uh, the Prime Minister of the day, if he's not considered to be right enough. We'll get on to Malcolm Turnbull's new book in just a moment. But uh, I've always felt that one of the great advantages Scott Morrison has is that he is, as I would perceive it, the right weight within, as I've called it, within the, the coalition. He's, uh, he's, he's moderate enough, as in he's no Dutton, uh, for the moderates to, you know, to sort of bite down hard. Tol- and tol- being tolerate. There. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> tolerate and for the and for the right wingers they they can say well he's better than a Turnbull or or a Julie Bishop or 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 some other option like that so um, that that I think is one of his strengths in surviving of course it's harder to topple a leader in office than it it once was so I I think he's he's pretty secure the polls are with him 
his decision-making processes have improved, uh, his demeanour has improved, his confidence has improved. Uh, what happens between now and the election, of course, is anyone's guess. We know things uh, can move extremely quickly. But on part of his path for getting out of here, as he's made plain, is going to be this use of contact tracing um, so ah, that we yes. can start to open up. And, uh, and if there is someone gets so... Uh, COVID, that they can track down their contacts and, and isolate them quickly. Uh, the key tool that's being planned is this app that the government is about to roll out. Um, and there are, I have to say that the thought of an app that tells the government where you are at any time, and in fact knows retrospectively where you've been at any time, and I'm going to be quite frank about this, in a security apparatus that is headed by Peter Dutton, a man who I distrust, as, as a public administrator, um, and whose motives, I think, are often appallingly uh, based towards political advantage rather than national good, um, and whose department has at least got some uh, role to play in the Ruby Princess debacle, which is all now under an investigation led by Brett Walker SC, who's a fairly independent-minded person. We'll see where all that lands. Uh, but the thought of having in my phone a process that the security apparatus headed by Peter Dutton uh, will be able to find out where you were at any time, um, I think is makes me deeply uncomfortable. And I think this is a case where what possibly is a very good piece of public health policy in a pandemic may be undermined by the years of appalling practices uh, of the undemocratic and uh, anti-civil libertarian uh, instincts of Peter Dutton as he's grabbed all this security power to himself over recent years, uh, I wouldn't be at all surprised if many people have a deep distrust over that probably quite important public health tool. Yeah, I, um, I have a natural tendency towards maintaining civil liberties, so I'm deeply uncomfortable with, with it too. I'm not as specifically uncomfortable with Peter Dutton as you are, but I'm more broadly probably more uncomfortable with this government uh, having it uh, than you are perhaps, because I, I don't single him out as much. I actually think that this is a wider attitudinal problem for this conservative government, indeed for conservative governments writ large at the moment, this slow erosion, almost like where the, I'm now mixing my metaphors, but you know, we're like the, the frog getting boiled here slowly because we've had so many rights which predate frankly peter dutton uh in in the role as far as i'm concerned getting eroded i i even go back to the howard era on this and and you know the the move of technology has only heightened it uh and this is a, a key part of obviously this this app's ability to, to track us via our phone is a technological development and and these rights and abilities of government to do it are uh, largely built into existing provisions as well, which is what scares me. So even if they turn it off after the pandemic, and that's an if at the moment, not a guarantee, uh, I'm still concerned at the capacity being in the system there. And I'm concerned at the wider groupthink uh, inside politics that this is okay. Uh, and, and I've watched this erosion of our civil liberties over many years, and, and not just in this security space, but also attitudinally in society. I mean, we're responsible too, and I don't mean you and I, I mean people generally. You know, we, we give up an enormous amount of our information now on social media platforms willingly in a way that decades gone by people wouldn't have been so willing to do. So when you meld all that together, I'm also, Hugh, deeply uncomfortable 
uh, about this at the same time as recognising, and we've seen it in Singapore, not that they're a democracy, how effective this tracking is to be able to deal um, with the contact tracing of, of COVID-19. It doesn't change the fact that there are concerns there and it becomes that lofty argument about, you know, what is in the greater good here. Well, that doesn't change the civil liberties concerns about this. So as long as we're going to really watch it uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic as well. Uh, no, I wouldn't then... trust it at all. I think there's the temptation for them to argue that it needs for some reason to be sustained uh, and there'll always be a good reason for it. They had to take away the e-health uh, plan mm. because it was uh, even people in the medical profession were saying that the uh, privacy elements in it were uh, were just nowhere near strong enough. Uh, the public backlash against it was so strong they withdrew it to go and have another look at it. Uh, the fears that stuff would get hacked or leaked out to uh, you know to insurers to employers. You know that the fact that you might have you know been treated for depression ten years ago or something. Uh, and mm. also just before all this blew up, I covered the story of a guy called George Dixon. Um, who got caught up in laws that were set up in New South Wales after the, uh, the Lint Cafe siege in Sydney, uh, which were designed to, to control people who they couldn't get major charges against, but who had some link to things like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. And George Dixon had none of those interests. He was a, um, he was a cannabis uh, activist, cannabis law reformer. Right. A fairly, you know, and his only crime that he had committed um, was that he had uh, been taken in at the Nimbin uh, Marijuana Festival, and had uh, and had been had been brought to Lismore in the middle of the night uh, on some minor drug charges, uh, cannabis possession charges, and then they let him go to about in the middle of the night. He was barefoot, thirty kilometres away from his camp, and in his frustration, he smashed a couple of. Uh, police car windows parked outside, $800 damage, mm. went to jail for it, in jail, made some joke about wanting to blow up parliament, uh, and then was put on a terrorism control order. Uh, yeah, he never had any record for violence. And this is a way in which these things, eventually the Supreme Court threw it out, you know, just basically said, no, go away, this is ridiculous. But it shows how these um, laws can creep away from their intended purpose into, um, you know, those laws were not set up to get noisome dope fiends um, with a bent about law reform on cannabis. That they would, that they'd deal with terrorists, and yet it did stretch to that point. Yeah, well, I've, I've got huge... Look, you know, we're, we're essentially on the same page. I've got worries about it. I've got a feeling, though, that uh, not enough of, of us are going to have worries about it and they're going to get their way on it, but we'll see. This is something worth mentioning. There are a hell of a lot of background briefings going on at the moment in Canberra from the PM to journalists. Now, uh, yeah, maybe I wasn't even supposed to say that, but bad luck. Uh, I haven't been attending them because I'm not in Canberra at the moment, um, but they're you know very high level uh, and I, I, I get feedback from them. And by all accounts, there are risks in that as well, just quietly that that level of intimate access about here's where we're going, it becomes, that, that, that's, the, that's the capture principle being a little bit at risk, in my view, uh, on, on some of the government's decision-making. And never is the fourth estate more important than at a time like this. As long as we don't just scaremonger, uh, that, that accountability mechanism is crucial. Now, Hugh, we've only got a matter of minutes uh, before we're out of time. We've got to get let's to touch on Malcolm let's, let's touch on Malcolm Turnbull. He, he, you know, uh, he's got a book out. The 7.30 reporter is promoting a, an interview with him in which he appears to be 
claiming that he was swept from office by the plutocrats. He names uh, Rupert Murdoch, but also Tony Abbott as a tool of them uh, because they feared that he was going to win the election in 2019 and he wasn't owned uh, by those uh, wealthy interests. Is he just just creating a kind of a coup narrative to cover for his own inadequacies or has he got a point? I think it's complicated. Uh, I think it's really interesting. And I don't think it's black and white, either the dismissal of what he says, nor what he does say, to be clear. And, and let me put it this way. Malcolm Turnbull's faults that played a part in his downfall are faults that I don't know as a man that he's that alert to. However, they weren't the only factor at play here. Now, I don't doubt uh, that there would be senior players in the media, you know, moguls, if you like, uh, who didn't like aspects of Turnbull's leadership, fairly or unfairly. I don't think it was quite as command and control as he seems to think that there was some sort of, you know, political fatwa out on him uh, by some of those powers that be. But he did get unlucky in some respects. You know, certainly the rise and rise of Peter Credlin uh, having platforms to attack him was unhelpful for him. And clearly, she had a vested bloody interest in this. I mean, good Lord, she was the chief of staff to Tony Abbott and both her and Tony Abbott have forever thought that Abbott's eternal mistakes were only Turnbull's fault because he was the one that ended up taking him out. So she had an axe to grind, there's no doubt about that. But I don't think it was as coordinated as he suggests. I do think that's, uh, if you like, him trying to justify what happened. But I equally do think there is some truth in this idea one of the things that would have frustrated a lot and not just the Murdochs that would have frustrated a lot of, you know, big fish uh, in the media and the business world about Malcolm Turnbull, apart from his own character elements in some respects, it would be the fact that nobody owns Turnbull. Okay. I'm not saying that Abbott was owned or in his day, Rudd or Howard or anyone were owned, but they were more susceptible to it than Malcolm Turnbull. Malcolm Turnbull's wealth gives him F off money. And even as a political leader, he wanted to be prime minister. He ticked the box. He would have liked to be there longer. But he never took to indirect or direct forms of bullying from anybody. And I think that's actually a part of the story, but not as much a part or nearly as coordinated and controlled as he would like to think. Over to you. Yeah, well, I think the fact that it's been revealed that he... Uh, helped and says he would have funded the Guardian Australia website, which is seen as sort of a leftist nest of commies by uh, good conservative elements <laughs> in the coalition itself would just stagger people from that side. It, it's an, in, I agree that, you know, he worked for, uh, he worked for Kerry Packer as a young man. He knew what it was like to be around a bully and a powerful uh, man. And he, um, you know, he didn't become a, a, a lapdog to Packer. He worked for Packer, but he always, I, I knew him back in those days. There was always, Malcolm was always Malcolm. It's interesting, mm. I think, for an ordinary punter like you or I, <laughs> is that when you consider that a man who has the mansion, Mr. Harborside Mansions, they're right, you know, one of the best real estate addresses in, in, the, in the whole world on Sydney Harbour, Malcolm Turnbull, in his own context, is not that wealthy. Uh, so sure, until Clive Palmer came along, the wealthiest man in Parliament, but he's worth maybe a couple of hundred million dollars. Um, the plutocrats that he speaks of, plutocrat meaning someone who gains their power through their wealth, uh, mm. th there are there are. If you look at the rich list now, there are billionaires uh, by the dozen in Australia you've never heard of. Ordinary people have never heard of. 
Uh, Malcolm Turnbull, in that context, is not a rich man. And the people who are super rich, the multi-billionaires, are used to wielding power in an entirely different way. So we need to acknowledge that yeah, that, that is a thing which exists. True, true, true. But I guess my point is that unlike most politicians, and literally we've got minutes here, Hugh, but unlike most politicians, you know, him having somewhere in the order of 300 million, I think it creeped up to, or even more now, maybe, it, it's enough to not care what they think and to not be uh, That's bullied. true. He, he, was, he yeah. was never going to go hungry. I wonder where his next meal was coming from. And, uh, <laughs> you know, anyway, we'll see how that plays out in the book as yet to, to really get uh, a chance to pick through it if, uh, if you've got an appetite for that. Before we go, though, uh, mm. on a personal note, you and I have both been the enormous beneficiaries of a man called Tim Sweeney, uh, yes. who retired just short of his 68th birthday last week. Uh, Tim was a Brisbane boy. Uh, he was a fine young camera. He started off in the black and white days in Brisbane and uh, a 48 career, year career with uh, Channel uh, Zero, Channel O as it was, then Channel 10, traveled the world. Um, he was essentially the man who turned Laurie Oakes, who was then the, initially the 10 uh, bureau chief and political editor back in the early 1980s, uh, turned him from a print man into a TV man. One of the finest, every Australian will have seen his pictures uh, at some stage. One of the finest cameramen, editors, political journalists any of us have ever seen. And, and the best, one of the best journalists in Australia no one's ever heard of. Uh, over to you for a final thought on Tim Sweeney. Yep. No, no, I, you couldn't have said it better. I'd encourage people to go to the 10 Daily site to see your written words. We've both tweeted about it as well. But, you know, the breadth of his career, the length of it, uh, he was a good bloke to boot. Uh, and for me, I only got to see a snapshot of him arriving um, before his retirement. But, you know, his age and wisdom and knowledge and connections around the joint and respect, uh, super important to me fitting in quickly and easily, uh, wouldn't have been anywhere near the journey and the ride to start with that it ended up being uh, having him there. So he'll be missed. Uh, I hope he enjoys his retirement. Absolutely. Good to talk to you, PVO. And we'll talk again next week. See you, mate. You have been listening to a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. Hi, I'm Leah Harris. In the Where's William Tyrrell podcast, I told the story of the little boy who disappeared from his foster grandmother's home more than five years ago as the journalist who's been on the journey since day one. It's a story that is as baffling as it is heartbreaking, and I'm glad we could give William's foster parents the chance to tell their side of the story in their first interview in almost four years. The most recent episodes have focused on the coronial inquest into the disappearance of William Tyrrell along with the case against former lead detective on the investigation, Gary Jubelin. And I spoke with Mr Jubelin not long after he was convicted of illegally recording a person of interest in the case. You can listen to Where's William Tyrrell and our other 10 Speaks podcasts on the Acast app or wherever you get your podcasts.